Those who will be remaining in the sanctuary, uh, if you would please flip over to Psalm 69. Psalm 69. Beginning in verse 1, for the choir director, according to the Shosh Anim, a psalm. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in a deep mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying, my throat is parched, my eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, that I then have to restore. O God, it is you who knows my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord, God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach, dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate talk about me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, and the greatness of your loving kindness. Answer me. With your saving truth. Deliver me from the mire and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me and do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. O draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. May their table... Before them become a snare. And when they are in peace, may it become a trap. And may their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them and may your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate and may none dwell in their tents. For they have persecuted him who you yourself have smitten. They tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and may they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out from the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving, and it will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hooves. The humble have seen it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive, for the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. 
Let heaven and earth praise him and seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. The descendants of his servants will inherit it, inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell in it. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for its truth. Father, thank you for the good kindness that you have shown us by supplying us with this word today. Father, thank you for the majestic picture of Jesus that we see in it. In his name, amen. So this morning, I just want to go ahead and address the elephant in the room. No, there is not an outline for you to fill in. That was on purpose. Because as I was kind of working through how this sermon needed to work, there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of going back and forth. And I started to like write out an outline. And after I got to about the fourth page of going back and forth, back and forth, and trying to connect things together, I said, you know, just one Sunday they can listen and make whatever notes they want to make. It'll be just fine. For the note takers, for the die hard note takers, I will point out a couple of like major points. And you can write that down. Like if it makes you feel way more comfortable. Now, somebody did ask my dear sweet wife when she sat down, hey, there's not an outline. What does that mean? She said, it means we're going to be here for hours. That's what that means. <laughs> She's heard me preach a long time, so she knows. So I'm going to try to disprove my wife this morning, but... I make zero promises about that whatsoever. So this morning, Jesus is the great paradox of salvation. Now, I don't want to insult anybody's intelligence, so I'm going to start out with uh, just a, a vocabulary lesson. What is a paradox? I'm going to give you the, the dictionary definition of a paradox. I'm going to break it down. So a paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when you investigate it closely or you begin to explain it may actually prove that crazy sounding absurd statement to be true. That's what a paradox is. So it's a seemingly self-contradictory absurd statement that when closely investigated and looked at may actually prove to be true. In other words, it's things that don't seem to fit together but when you really look at them closely, they're actually true and right. I will give you the most classic paradox from philosophy this morning and then we'll move on. Just so that you kind of have an example of a paradox. The pursuit of happiness will cause you grief. Now that sounds absurd. That sounds completely contradictory. Like if I put all of my effort and my energy into pursuing being happy, surely I'm actually going to end up being happy. I won't end up with a whole bunch of grief. Give it a shot. Take all of your energy and your effort and your time and your resources and pour it solely and completely into only your personal happiness and see how it comes out. You will be so stressed out. It's actually the way our society works right now. It's called 
they, they got a really cool acronym for it. It's called FOMO, Fear of Missing Out. I can't commit to going to this thing because what if somebody else invites me to this other better thing? And now I'm stressed out about all these awesome fun things that I might get to do and I can't like plan to do any of them because what if something better comes along and you're in grief in the pursuit of your own happiness. So that's a paradox. It sounds like a crazy sentence. The pursuit of your own happiness will so actually only cause you grief. But when you really look at it and investigate it, it pretty much proves itself to be true. That's paradox. Jesus is the great paradox of salvation. And you say, what seems contradictory about Jesus and our salvation? The only way, I'm going to go ahead and show you the paradox and then we'll walk through the psalm so we can see it together. The only way that God can forgive sin... And to make things right is for his justice to be fulfilled. In order for his justice to be fulfilled, the sinner must be punished. But in order for salvation to take place, that same sinner must be forgiven. In the person of Jesus Christ, we simultaneously have the punished sinner who, by the way, Jesus was sinless, yet he is the punished sinner, and the one who has received God's grace to offer and give and supply forgiveness because God's justice has been satisfied. In the one person of Jesus, we have God's offer of grace and forgiveness because the sinless person was punished as the actual sinner. It's a paradox. That doesn't make any sense. The perfect, righteous, sinless Christ was treated by a holy and perfect and just God as if he was deserving of the full brunt of God's wrath. And because of that, we who are the actual sinners are now able to be forgiven of our actual sin as if we never committed it because the one who never committed sin was treated as if he were the most wretched sinner. That doesn't make any sense. That is a self-contradictory and absurd statement. There's a reason why the Apostle Paul, when talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead, says that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Because, friend, I'll just be straight with you this morning. When you look at the gospel, it's crazy talk. That's what it is. It's crazy talk. You believe that some guy who lived 2,000 years ago was actually God in the flesh and that somehow he was part of a triune community of divine beings who were three yet one and the first person of that triune reality poured out all of his judgment and just filled wrath on the second person of that triune community even though that second person of the triune community never did anything wrong and made a great exchange for all the flaw-filled human beings in the earth that would repent and believe on him being that god man you're nuts you're totally off your rock everything you just said is completely in contradiction with everything that we know about how reality works it's called a paradox 
And here in Psalm 69, we have laid out for us the great paradox of salvation. And so I want to walk through Psalm 69 quickly on its surface. And I want to connect it to the reality of Jesus. Because if you hear this psalm... Not read as a prayer of David, because David wrote this as a song for the community of Israel. But if you hear this as a testimony from Jesus about how and why he is able to save, it becomes incredibly profound and, by the way, very spot on. So I want us to see, for those of you who are making notes... Psalm 69, the gospel and the glory of Jesus as our Savior. So, in verses 1 and 2, there is a cry for salvation from the author, from David. There is a flood motif that goes with this, a call back to the days of Noah. Save me, O God. For the waters have threatened my life, sunk in a deep mire. There is no foothold. I have come into deep waters. The flood overflows me. And this need for salvation creates an emotional distress that we find in verse 3. I am weary with crying and my throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. And I know what some of you are already thinking. You say, look, this can't be Jesus because he didn't need to be saved. My God My God, why have you forsaken me? That's what he said when he was dying on the cross, a death he did not deserve. And somehow, in a way that we can't fully comprehend, another theological paradox took place on the cross where the first person of the Trinity who is in eternal and everlasting union with the second and third persons of the Trinity somehow had a relational rift to where Jesus was calling out to God as if he had been forsaken and in fulfillment of the reality of Scripture, God had in some sort of metaphorical spiritual sense that we can't fully grasp, had turned his face away from the second second person of the Trinity, as it says in Isaiah, my sin has created a separation between me and my God, and my sin has caused him to turn his face away from me. And Jesus receiving the full brunt of the wrath of God, the overwhelming flood of God's wrath, which is the picture that we have of Noah in that story that is being referenced here in the Psalms. That is the notion of what Christ was going through as he's dying on the cross and he screams out in agony, a quotation from another psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My eyes are dry from my weeping. My throat is parched from crying out as I wait for my God. This is Jesus on the cross dying a death he did not deserve, calling out for God to save. And guess what? God is not going to deliver him from that cross. He's going to let him die. Why? So that one day when you, as one of his marked people in faith and repentance, come to acknowledge the reality of the gospel, you can call out for God to save you and he will do so instantly. You see now why I didn't give you an outline? This is the first three verses. We're all over the place. Like there's, this is one page of notes. We can't do that. 
And so we move to verse 4. Not only is there this cry for salvation, not only is there this emotional distress that comes from this need of deliverance, but then there's also this external pressure, these enemies and the injustice that's taking place. We see here in verse 4, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Here's the thing. Who hated Jesus without cause? Everyone. If anyone did not honor Christ as God in the flesh, fully worthy of adoration and worship and honor and blessing, they were not loving him. They were hating him. And they were doing so without cause. Because all Christ did when he came was show us the glory of God. Those who hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful. Who technically issued the sentence of death on Jesus? What empire? The Roman Empire. That's a pretty powerful enemy in the first century A.D. in Palestine. Those who hate me do so. Those who would destroy me are powerful. But they're wrongfully my enemies. Should Rome have opposed Jesus? No. Rome should have acknowledged the glory of the one true God. Just like every other nation in history, every other people in history, every other individual in history should have acknowledged the glory of God. Our depravity, our sin, our separation from God is an affront. It's cosmic treason to the glory of the Most High God and the image that we bear that has been marred by our sin. What I did not steal, I have to then restore. There's this external pressure And then there's this internal struggle that takes place. Oh God, verse 5, it is you who knows my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from you. May those who wait uh, for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. And I know what a lot of you are doing. You say, hold up, whoa, stop, 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 stop. This can't be about Jesus. He's talking about his own sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He took our sins in his own body on the tree. Friends, here's the thing that is a profound paradox. Jesus Christ simultaneously remained a perfect, flawless sacrifice and simultaneously became sin itself for us. Doesn't make any sense. Absurd. Jesus Christ is the great paradox. He understood in that moment. And and this is the reason why most theologians agree. This is the reason why in the great garden, when he's praying to God, if there's another way, can this cup pass from me? And he begins bleeding sweat drops of blood. What is it that he's struggling with when it's not my will, but your will? Can we do this some other way? It is the great cup of the wrath of God. He knows that in just a few hours, because friends, he's eternally the second person of the Trinity. He knows the plan. 
He knows what he signed up for. He knows what he's about. He knows what his mission is. Somehow in the great mystery of the divine, the second person of the Trinity will receive the full wrath of the Godhead for sin that he did not commit because he's holy. And the holy thing is somehow also at the same time the sinful thing. Paradox. And so here the voice is crying out. Of course, with David, he has plenty of sins for us to point this to. But this is a type and shadow of the glory of Christ and his great paradoxical salvation that he brings to us through the gospel. And Christ Jesus is now being exposed, the second person of the Trinity, to the first person of the Trinity as the sinner. And the first person of the Trinity is pouring his wrath out on him. And so then we get this angst from the one praying this, the one saying this. There's this angst that others place on him even when he pursues what is right. Notice here when you get to verses 7 through 12, because for your sake I have borne reproach. I'm doing what you wanted me to do. I'm following your will. Dishonor now covers my face, literally in Jesus' case, because he's crowned with thorns. Blood is streaming down his face. I've become estranged from my brothers. The disciples, all except for John, have abandoned him. An alien to my mother's sons, his physical brothers, have abandoned him. Zeal for your house consume me. By the way, that's exactly how the New Testament describes Jesus' quest and journey to go to the cross. Like this is almost a quotation from the psalm in the New Testament. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Because they hate the Father, they have hated the Son. Jesus preached that fairly regularly. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became a reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, it became a byword to them. Those who sit at the gate talk about me. I am the song of drunkards. Now, I I find it kind of funny. It's worth contemplating. What did Jesus get accused of in his earthly life and ministry? Being what? A drunkard. Because he came eating and drinking. John the Baptist was fasting. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they called him a glutton and a drunkard. I'm the song of drunkards. And then what happens? There's this prayer that is issued up. This prayer that speaks to the character of God. But as for me... In spite of all of this that we've seen to this point, as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness, listen to this. Wow, you want to know how to pray? Here's how you pray. It's amazing when you pray scripture that you pray the right way. Watch this. O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. cross is about God's loving kindness. It's about God's compassionate, love-filled mercy. It's about God's saving truth. 
And what is it that it delivers us from? Remember at the start of this psalm, there was a cry for deliverance from the mire and the flood. And notice here in verse 14, deliver me from the mire that I do not sink in. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me. May the deep nor the deep swallow me up. This notion of may the pit shut its mouth on me. May it not do that. I'm going to be delivered from the flood. I'm going to be delivered from my enemies. And then notice it rolls back to loving kindness again when we get to verse 16. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me. And do not hide your face from your servant. For I am in distress. Answer me quickly. And then the last verse of this prayer, verse 18. Oh, draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. Purchase me back from this place. Set me free from this place. And then notice in verses 19 through 21, there's an indication of the reproach. You know, God, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. Friends, this morning, historically speaking, the crucifixion of Jesus, there could have been no more dishonoring and reproach-filled and shame-filled way for a human being to die than the way that he died on the cross. Beaten, stripped completely naked, the crown pressed into his head, Spikes driven through his forearms and through his tops of his feet, hung there to choke to death on his own blood for the whole world to see him this way. The Romans were good at a lot of things, and one of them was killing people. They really know how to do that. And here he is hanging in front of the whole world, completely exposed, completely helpless, completely in pain, completely suffering. Nothing that he can do to deliver himself, though he instructs us that he could have called entire legions of angels down to end the whole thing. But this was the will of God. And so he bore his reproach and his shame and his dishonor. God knows it. He looks for sympathy and he finds none. He receives abuse as you keep going at the hands of his enemies there in verse 21. Gall for food, vinegar to drink. And so what does he do? He calls for God to place judgment on these enemies. And friends, there's two different ways that you can look at this. You can look at this. There's actually three distinct ways that you can look at it. All of them actually having merit to them. You can look at it from the historical perspective of David calling for God to bring judgment on his actual enemies, which is very valid and right. You can also have it as Christ ultimately in full glory after his crucifixion to his resurrection and the final eschatological reality of all things, calling for those who do not come into the gospel to be, receive a full judgment. And that is absolutely right. I feel that there is another way to also see this and understand it and would be appropriate and that this is in a meantime sort of judgment. Those who have not yet repented of their sins, those who have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are still outside of the gospel, trusting in themselves, trusting in their own way, trusting in their own lives, 
What does the Lord God Almighty want their lives to be like without Jesus? May their table before them be a snare. When they're in peace, may it be a trap. May their eyes grow dim. May they have fear continually. May your indignation and your anger be on them. May their camp, their true close friends be desolate. May no one dwell with them in their tent. Friends, this is the estate of the lives of those who attempt to live life for their own glory and not the glory of Christ. Your feast table is actually a snare. Your peace is not really peace. You may be surrounded by people, but you're actually truly alone. You are afraid of everything, especially dying, but even more particularly, truly living. Those who are not in the gospel live every moment of every day of their lives in an active state of true and real judgment. Because their life should be filled with meaning, reflecting the glory of the image of God. And everything they try to do fails at their purpose. And so they have to live for themselves back to our original paradox. And the pursuit of your own happiness only brings you grief. And so he calls for this great judgment to fall on them. Why should this great judgment fall on them? It's answered in verse 26. And I want you to see the transition of language that happens from the first half of 26 to the second half of 26. For they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten. Singular, it's individual, it's self-focused. When the Apostle Paul has his vision on the road to Damascus. And he's been persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. And we've just come off of the stoning of Stephen. And he was put to death at the command of who later became the Apostle Paul. And Jesus blinds Paul there on that road. And Paul calls out and he says, who are you? What does he say? Do you know what he says? He says, I am Christ, the one you have been persecuting. What, what, is, what does this say? Why, why should God pour out his wrath and indignation on the enemies of the gospel? Because they have persecuted him who you yourself have smitten. God the Father struck down God the Son for the salvation of his people. It was part of the eternal covenant of the triune Godhead that the second person of the Trinity would bleed and would die a death he did not deserve so that God's people could be set free under God's justice and God's mercy from their sin in this beautiful paradox that's called the gospel. How dare any other entity in this universe that has been created even think to raise a finger to the glory of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You have persecuted him who you yourself have smitten. God the Father says, oh no. There's one being and one being in the universe 
that by agreement with the second person of the Trinity could dare strike him. And that's God the Father striking God the Son to send and seal God the Spirit in the lives of the people that he has set out to save. No one else will dare raise a hand to the majesty of the glory of Christ. That's what this first sentence is talking about. But then notice the transition of language. And they tell of the pain of those, not him, those, plural. Those whom you have wounded. That word, hey, just, just to let you know. Just to help you a little bit, that word for wounded in Hebrew, best translated, pierced through. Friends, we, if we are in Christ, we, if we are new covenant people, we, with Christ, have been pierced through. You say, no, 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 Philip, you're, you're taking it too far. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives within me. There is a great theological principle that if I'm going to participate in the resurrection of Jesus, I must first participate in the crucifixion of Jesus. I must be a partaker of his death if I'm going to be a partaker of his life. It's the picture of baptism. I'm dying with Jesus. That I might be raised to walk in the newness of his life. And so right here in this verse, we have the declaration of what has happened to Christ himself. The entity that truly received the punishment. And by extension, all of those who are covenant people who are coming in Christ that he died to save. And friends, God will not let you strike the head nor the body. God will not let you strike the shepherd or the sheep. God will not let you strike the husband or the bride. He won't. God will preserve his people the same way he preserved his son. Great promise. And so we see continued judgment in verses 27 and 28. Add iniquity to their iniquity that they may not come into your righteousness. And then the severity of judgment for those who do not come into the righteousness of Jesus Christ. May they be blotted out of the book of life. May they not be recorded with the righteous are written down with the righteous. And then 29 through 36 at the end, there's this deliverance that is declared. But, listen to this. Tell me if this does not sound like Jesus. But I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high... When when Jesus was hanging on the cross and the thieves are having a conversation with him and about him. And the one thief kind of puts the other one in his place. Says this man doesn't deserve to be here. And he asked Jesus to remember him. 
What does Jesus promise that man? Today, you will be with me in paradise. I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. Even in the suffering of the pain, even in the bearing of the wrath of God, even in the great exchange and dying the death that he did not deserve, and the incredible sorrow both physically and spiritually that was the cross, Jesus knew this was not the end of the story. But his work on the cross was to overcome sin and death and hell and the enemy and our fallenness and our wretchedness and our marred image that we might be made new and be made like him. And he makes a promise of it from the cross itself. And these things are all super important. This is not me. I'm not saying this. What I'm about to say, I'm not saying this so that you will neglect this. But I want you to notice and that event on the cross, that guy never walked the aisle of a church. He never followed anybody in a word-for-word prayer. He never filled out a contact card. They didn't pause the crucifixion and get down and have a baptismal service. He never went on a mission trip, never joined a Sunday school class, never was part of a small group Bible study. He died that day. Within hours of having this conversation with Jesus, he never shared the gospel with anybody else. He never did anything to evidence spiritual growth or transformation of life. Do you know what did happen to him? He called out to the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy and Jesus gave him mercy. It's called grace. It's a paradox. He was literally being put to death for being a criminal. He had nothing about him that was worth saving. And Jesus saved him anyway. I'm afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. And then what does he say? I will praise the name of God with song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Friends, the greatest praise song ever to exist is Christ is risen. Mm. And what's that going to do? I want you to see this. This is very important. Verses 31 and then later 36. We're going to come back to him just briefly in just a second. Super important. And it will please... The Lord. All of this, everything that's happened up to this point, which is clearly testimony of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And it will please the Lord better than an ox. Or a young bull with horns and hooves. There is not one animal sacrifice in the book of Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy, that will please the Lord the way the sacrifice of His Son Jesus has pleased the Lord. Because the death of those animals just meant you had to kill more animals later. But the death of Jesus means you have been set free. And what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Look at what it says. The humble 
have seen it. Now, I don't talk textual criticism a lot up here, but some of you may even have this note in your Bible, depending on how many notes it gives you. Some of you, in front of the word have there, may have a number one. You go to the subscript and you read, and it talks about ancient manuscripts. Some Hebrew manuscripts have a different tense of the verb here. Instead of being a more of a past type tense of having seen it, a number of the manuscripts actually have a future tense of this word, the humble will see it. Which though I don't do this a lot, I think it's probably a better reading. The humble will see it and will be glad. You who seek God, let your heart Revive. Let your heart come alive again. That's what revival means. My heart was dead in my trespasses and sins. He took my hard heart out. He put my heart of flesh in. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. And friends, I know that this is very much a reference to truly needy and truly prisoners in a physical sense. But hear me this morning. Every human being on the earth who has been born in Adam is needy and a prisoner to their own wretched sinfulness. There's a reason why the New Testament makes it very clear that we have to be set free by Jesus Christ because we are enslaved to our sin. And what does it say? The Lord hears the needy, doesn't despise the prisoner. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them, for God will save Zion, his covenant people, and build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and possess it. Verse 36, the descendants of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell in it. And and I want to close with this notion very quickly. Jesus is the fulfillment of this huge paradox in in Psalm 69. If you haven't seen it to this point, I'm so sorry that I did a bad job of pointing out that Jesus is in this text. But I want you to see three things very quickly about this text that show that this is actually about Jesus. First, verse 21, they will give me gall for my food. Poison is what that word means. And for my thirst, they will give me vinegar to drink. This is straight up what happened on the cross. Like straight up what happened on the cross. Like I know a lot of you for Easter time are reading Easter stories in preparation. We're going to be doing that with the Monday Thursday service coming up, reading through a lot of the stuff that happened there. Straight up what happened on the cross. Verse 26. For they have persecuted him who you yourself has smitten. This is the entire suffering servant reality from Isaiah 53. So we've already looked at that. But then I want you to really see it in verse 36. The descendants of his servants will inherit it. Wretchedly, wretchedly, wretchedly horrible translation. There is no text where the Hebrew word for descendant, which is the Hebrew word for seed, is plural there. It's singular, like Paul makes the argument about in Galatians. 
If you don't know Paul's Galatians argument about the singular descendant, the singular seed, and Jesus is the actual seed, and that the great old covenant promises are not actually to Abraham, the great old covenant promises are a type and shadow of the eternal covenant reality that is found only in the person of Jesus Christ, because he's the one true seed of God, the one seed that comes to give all of us life, and all of us hope, and all of us grace, then I encourage you to go and read the entire book of Galatians when you get home this afternoon. Because Paul makes a great point. This is not descendants, plural. This is singular in the Hebrew text. Every Hebrew text, not even a typographical bad error Hebrew text. Every Hebrew text is singular. The seed, the descendant. The descendant of his servants. Well, who were the servants of God? The nation of Israel. Who is the descendant? Jesus Christ. Well, guess what? He's from the nation of Israel. He's born of the Hebrews. The one true descendant of the servants of God. What's he going to do? He, Jesus, will inherit it. Jesus is the inheritance. Not the land. Not the land space. Not any of that. It's not the temple, not the tabernacle, not the law, not the priesthood, not any other thing that you want to sub in. The inheritance is Jesus. And then what does the second half of this verse say? And those, this time actually plural, who love His name. Whose name? Well, the way it's written in your text, it wants you to think of the divine being. And in this case, this would be accurate because Jesus is divine being. But the his here is referencing back to the seed, the singular descendant. Those who love the descendant, the actual inheritance, who love his name, guess what they get to do? They get to dwell in it. Dwell in what? Dwell in the inheritance that is Jesus Christ. And what is the inheritance of Jesus Christ? Friends, it is not your streets of gold. It is not your mansion in the sweet by and by. Listen, I don't know. I truly, genuinely do not know what the physical characteristics of the new heaven and the new earth are going to be like. I have no idea. You say, Philip, hadn't you read the Bible? It talks all about it. Yeah, and that's called uh, apocalyptic literary language. John didn't know what he was looking at. He did the best he could. That's what that means. I have no, any imagery that I can put in my head about what the new heavens and new earth is going to be like at the final resurrected glory is going to pale in comparison to what it's actually like. I have no idea. But, the, but that's not the point. So many people in their Christian lives get hung up on what's it going to be like one day. I don't know what it's going to be like one day. I've been studying this for a long time and I have, I know less now than I did when I was young. I have no idea what it's going to be like, but I tell you one thing that I do know with absolute surety and certainty, Jesus will be there and it's going to be good. I get to live and dwell with Jesus. It won't just be a sightless faith anymore. The echo cry of John the Apostle in the revelation of come quickly Lord Jesus. I 
am tired of the warfare that exists in my own soul of claiming the name of Jesus and living a life that is disappointing to his glory. I want to be conformed fully to the image of Jesus. I want to be actually and completely seated in the heavenly places with him. I want to be robed fully and completely in his righteousness. I want to be completely and totally transformed and conformed to his glorious image. I want the warfare and the waging of the old man that's dying in me to be completely gone. I want his funeral to be over and I want to be set free from my iniquity and my sin. And friends, that is the inheritance of Jesus Christ. And those who love his name will dwell there. Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So you see why I didn't give you notes this morning. Because friends, our salvation is a great, great paradox. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved. It is the power of God. Christ Jesus the Holy One who bore our sin. And us, the wicked ones, who have received His righteousness. And when God looks upon you and me, if we are in Christ, He sees His Son. Praise God. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this great paradox of salvation. Thank you that Christ Jesus, the Holy One, became sin for us. And we, the wretched ones, became righteous because of Him. And that those who love His name will dwell in that eternal inheritance. Thanks be to God. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response together this morning.